Okay, everybody, welcome back for another episode of the Top DAT Podcast. I am the Uplift Athletic Trainer, Dr. Brandon Holland. And, and I am the Unapologetic AT, Dr. Donita Valentine. I am so excited to be back. We have a fun episode lined up today, have an incredible guest on deck. Oh, man, I can't wait to get to this one. This is one of my favorite topics. It's really near and dear to me. So we're just going to go ahead and, and dive right into it. First, we got our, our social media shout outs. Uh, Donita, would you mind? So we have Monroe Abram, who hit me up on LinkedIn uh, with some information about a high school district in Tennessee that was actually doing a little bit more for their COVID-19 um, check-ins and um, keeping track of what was going on and how they um, test their student athletes um, before and after uh, games and uh, practices. And so that was interesting because uh, we were sharing about some of our areas where they're not really testing and we can't really tell them to go get a test if they're experiencing symptoms. But this particular district in Tennessee is actually doing PCR testing a couple times a week for their student athletes and has a stringent follow-up plan for those who test positive and um, the return to play guidelines and their return to practice uh, guidelines. So that was uh, very interesting to hear. I'm glad that high school district is doing that. And thank you so much, um, Monroe, for reaching out Yeah, we're gonna and have listening. To. Yeah, definitely, definitely for listening, especially and reaching out and sharing that great info with us. Um, I'd be really interested to see how they fund it. Because that's something that um, I think would be practical and useful for a lot of school divisions across the nation. Absolutely. Um, I think that's the biggest hangup, uh, especially with most public in- entities. Uh, it's just like where I mean, and where, I mean, how much do most public uh, entities? How much money do they really bring in for their sports? And the money that they do bring in goes right back into the sports program. Right. And with so many programs not participating in sports for almost a year, um, in many places except for. Texas and some other places. Um, some areas on the East Coast, like South Carolina, they've been slowly getting things back going. And I know, um, Brandon, where you are, they're getting things going in Virginia. Um, they're getting things back up and going. But uh, most places just, you know, haven't been bringing any money in. So, how you know, you can't get blood from a turnip. So, very interesting to see how they would, they would fund something like that. Yeah, I'm going to dig into that and see if there's somebody we can contact just to see how they do it. Awesome. Should we recap last week's episode? Absolutely. All right. So last week we wrapped up the second uh, edition, the second installment of Dominating Distance Learning with Dr. Carlita Moore, who is the clinical education coordinator at Arkansas State. She has some incredible tidbits about what students can do to prepare themselves for success in a virtual environment and also what professors can do to prepare their students for success in a virtual environment. And that was a really fun conversation. Um, we got to get Dr. Moore back on for another. We'll find another topic to fit Dr. Moore in. She was incredible. 
Awesome. Absolutely. Dr. Moore got a lot of love on LinkedIn um, with uh, the bio and the advertisement that we had on the post that we did for her. She she brought in a lot of, of love, a lot of likes, a lot of comments. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Carlita, for everything that you do for athletic training and for your students and for getting on and talking with us on the top DAT podcast. Thanks again. Yes. Thank you very much. And I'm super excited about this week's guest. So I guess this week is a state licensed and board certified athletic trainer. She's earned her bachelor's of science degree in health and physical education at the university of Virginia, earned a master of science in exercise and fitness and health promotion at George Mason university also earned her PhD in education at GMU. Um, so this is, um, I can't wait. <laughs> She's an assistant <laughs> professor, a clinical education coordinator for the, uh, bachelor of science and master of science in athletic training programs at George Mason university. She is also the program coordinator for beats, which is bolstering excellence in athletic training students. It's a mentorship program aimed at supporting ethnically diverse athletic training students. And her research interests include, cultural competence in healthcare, racial and ethnic health disparities, racial and ethnic microaggressions, and retention of students of color in athletic training. She is an active member of the Fairfax Alumni Chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Go ahead, shout them out. (laughs) And um, her hobbies include reading, traveling, cooking, and creating. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the incredible, awesome Dr. Candice Lacayo on deck. Yes, indeed. We go ahead and give it up. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, thank you for, for being with us. I am so excited. I'm so glad to have you on deck. Absolutely. Welcome, Dr. Lacayo. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate the invitation. All right. Um, so, uh, is there anything you want to mention before we really dive in? Carry on. I will. I'll say my piece in a bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Doctor Lakaio is actually going to talk to us about uh, preceptorship, uh, why we need it, why it's important, the do's and don'ts, and the goods and the bads. So, um, I'm very excited. So, but before we get into that, we're going to talk about what's new in athletic training. So. Uh, it is National Athletic Trainers Month. Um, I am so excited. March is my second favorite month of the year behind my birthday. I should say third favorite because I got married in June and my wife will kick me in the teeth if I don't say that. Uh, <laughs> she will. She absolutely will. <laughs> so um, I thought it'd be f- it would be fun to some some of our listeners are not athletic trainers. And for those who are, they, they, they get they face these questions that we sometimes have a little bit of difficulty answering about who we are and what do we do. So I thought it'd be fun to serve up some fun questions to our guests and, and to each other about uh, what the heck athletic training is. So what is an athletic trainer? So athletic training um, or um, athletic trainers, are healthcare professionals who collaborate with physicians to optimize the activity and participation of patients and clients. That was very and athletic training, athletic training, sorry, is practiced by athletic trainers 
and it encompasses the prevention, diagnosis, and intervention of emergency, acute, and chronic medical conditions involving impairment, functional limitations, and disabilities. Students who want to become certified athletic trainers must earn a degree from an accredited athletic training curriculum. Accredited programs include formal instruction in areas such as injury illness prevention, first aid, and emergency care, assessment of injury illness, human anatomy and physiology, therapeutic modalities, and nutrition. Classroom learning is enhanced through clinical education experiences. I uh, know this so well because I put this in the signature of my emails. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So every time somebody gets a reply, be like, boom, don't get it twisted. This is who we are. This is what we do. I'm doing all of this. (laughs) (laughs) So if you don't know, now you know, you know. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So uh, one of the questions that we get asked a lot is what makes us different from other allied health professions like physical therapy or occupational therapy? Uh, anybody I want me to take this one? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't have this in the signature <laughs> of my email. <laughs> so, um, okay, I don't mind. I'll take it. So, uh, I think what makes us unique is our combination of uh, tools that we have at our disposal and our population. So, there are people who do some of the things that we do, but we're really, in my observation, like a Swiss Army knife of healthcare. Uh, We are well-versed in diagnosing and identifying injuries, preventing injuries, uh, treating injuries. So you may have some healthcare professionals who are really great at treating injuries, but the methods that they use to diagnose and identify injuries are are vastly different. They they may require more specialized equipment uh, like radiology and things like that, or they may already um, receive patients who've been already stabilized and are no longer in the super traumatic phases of their injury where we're there from start to finish uh, for many of our, our patients. We're there when they get hurt. We see it before it happens. We see it as it happens. And then we help them back after it happens. Traditionally, our patient population has been primarily athletics, but uh, we are expanding into uh, various areas, um, including military, corporate, so uh, anywhere people are physically active and get hurt because your body behaves the same way whether you hurt your back playing a sport or whether you hurt your back lifting a, lifting a box on your job. So um, it's, it's incredible to start uh, finally see the public start to understand uh, who athletic trainers are and what we do. And um, I think those are some of the things that make us unique is that we, um, we, we can, we can address a wide variety of issues using a wide variety of tools and our population, which had been, Primarily athletics, again, is beginning to expand uh, to people who are not traditionally considered athletes. Very well said. And before Apple said there's an app for that, athletic trainers said, oh, there's a special test for that. (laughs) Apple owes us some money. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Oh, this is so much fun. I love doing this. So um, I think the last question we had on deck for, for West News and Athletic Training related to um, NATA month or NATM month 
what can people do to advocate for the acquisition of athletic trainers or to support the ones that they already have? Uh, trip and treat. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, one of the most important things that you can do, especially if you are uh, your your job is to care for someone who is a student in a school system. School systems are moved by parent input and parent pressure. Sometimes it takes pressure to bust pipes, right? And we can identify a need as employees within a school division. And that need can be pointed out and recognized, but sometimes it's not as high of a priority until uh, parents make noise about it. And it doesn't always feel good. And sometimes it kind of feels like we're being thrown under the bus. Uh, but it is a necessary uh, tool, I think, in moving us forward. When parents... Um, when parents address the school division, if they do it loudly enough and consistently enough, the school division starts to take it, um, take notice and pay attention. Um, another thing you can do is just shout out your athletic trainer if you know you have one, if they've worked on your child or worked on you specifically to help you get well to recover for an, from an injury. Uh, just tag them and hashtag something cool and let them know. And uh, one of my favorite things to do now is I use social media to get the word out. Um, I used to, I'm kind of old school. I really love face to face stuff, but I don't think we can fight the the power of social media. It's, it's, it's kind of pointless to ignore it. So I think we can lean into that and help get the word out more effectively. Absolutely. And another way um, to advocate uh, for athletic trainers or for the acquisition of it is just set up a table somewhere. Whenever you see there's a health fair or someone having an event or something, you know, see if you can come set up a table. And if you are looking to, you know, get into something a little more non-traditional, like maybe say a gym, you want to offer your services there, you know, create a letter and, and explain who you are and what you do and, and what types of services you might be able to provide for their clients. I mean, that could work at a CrossFit gym. It could work at, you know, any, uh, you know, private owned gym or, or, um, area where, you know, any type of activities are being done. If you see the need for an athletic trainer, say something, go say, Hey, you know what? I think this is a great place for an athletic trainer. And, and this is what an athletic trainer is. And this is what an athletic trainer could do. And this is how they could serve your population and the benefits that it would have to that proprietor. I actually used that to get my kids a discount at their, their uh, martial arts school. So for a while I had been there awesome. helping to take care of a, a couple of the guys who get banged up um, while they're doing jujitsu and Muay Thai and they could just come right off of the mat and I'd have a few uh, equipment and supplies there that we could just do evaluations or wrapping or taping. And I, I could just tell them if they needed to be seen by a specialist and it was just something I did because I was sitting there anyway watching my boys practice. And um, it just ended up working out. So I have a great rapport with those people. I haven't been back in a while, but um, my services are still on the table, even though my boys aren't doing Muay Thai anymore. So I'd love to get back mm -hmm. in, especially when, when COVID dies down and you can go out and take a deep breath without panicking. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
And uh, I kind of did that same thing when uh, with the in the cut man, Mr. Jawan Means. He went and he was doing his thing, you know, being the cut man. And I was there. I had I had my my um, uh, instrument assisted tools and all of my things. I had my myofascial cups. I had all those things and you know, the before the fighters went on, I was like, you know, let me help you with your mobility a little bit, you know. I just kinda of did my thing and it was it was real cool. We kinda of put those two things together and we had a great time. Dope. Yeah. I think we nailed that. What I that. love about all these examples Go ahead. I'm just gonna add what I love about all these examples that you guys have given is that it was before something catastrophic happened. So people were able to see the value of athletic trainers before something bad happened. Yes. See, there's a message. We do not have to wait until terrible things happen before we address them. If we can point them out and, and identify the potential of terrible things happening, we can prevent them. And prevention is the first duty of the athletic trainers, prevention of injuries. So we, we really kind of gloss over that. We are, we are much so much a proactive society. I don't think it's just something that's unique to athletic training. In healthcare in general in the United States, we wait until there's a problem to fix it. So um, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on to stories and shenanigans. So this one is inspired, inspired actually um, by one of my, my clinical students. Um, so we talk a lot about fear and getting over fear and operating in the presence of fear. It's okay to be worried or concerned, or in some cases it's okay to be fearful, but we can't let fear of failure or fear of incorrect um, diagnosis or mistakes keep us from learning and growing. So I wanted to ask... Uh, I'm going to answer also, but I wanted to ask, I guess, uh, Candice and Donita, what event or opportunity or, or what's something, what is something that was presented to you in your time as a young athletic trainer or even as a student that um, you had to really nail or get through that let you know, like, hey, I belong here. I, I can do this and I don't have to be afraid or fearful. I, I'm I'm in the right place. Is there anything that that you remember in your career or your education that really helped you conquer the fear of just being a clinician? So there were two events for me. Both of them were in undergrad. Okay. Um, for the first one, I was setting up a star athlete on Eastem using a portable machine, and that was back in the day. It wasn't a digital machine. It had the two dials, and yes. both of them had to be turned to zero. So. I made sure that first dial was at zero, but the second one was a little bit more complicated. Um, the intervals were larger, and it looked like it was at zero, but really it was at the lowest, um, like the low end of the range for that setting. And I turned it on with it hooked up to the guy. He screamed out so loud. And so at that point, I had messed up. And there was like a freedom in messing up. Like I had already made the mistake at that point, And it was one of those things where you mess up and you'll never make that mistake again. Cause you're always going to remember um, that one time. So that was the first one. It was kind of like, okay, well I've already had this big screw up. So now I'm going to move forward. And I know that it's okay to mess up. The guy wasn't upset with me. My precept at the time wasn't upset with me. And I knew that I would never forget to check that again. 
And then the second time um, was when the student athlete got hurt on the court. And up until that point, I had always kind of paused the beat, like and waited for my preceptor to go first. But that particular night, I was in lockstep with him getting to the athlete side. And we got that person off the court. I didn't have to wait for him to tell me what to do. I, I was right there. We had practices skills repeatedly and I just felt confident and ready so of course that was after the ESIM incident <laughs> but at that point I kind of felt like okay I got this like I knew what to do he didn't have to you know hold my hand throughout this like I remembered I retained the things that we had practiced and yeah, that's a good feeling that that's is a awesome. real good feeling yes. for sure oh much First better off, than learning like this. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> Okay, first things first, I'm still a young athletic trainer. I don't I don't know nothing about a sim machine with <laughs> dials. I don't know nothing about that. Right. <laughs> um, right. Okay. I, I might I might know a little bit about it. Okay. Uh, but I think um one of the um <laughs> moments for me was uh, Mr. Z, I was I was covering football. I had football uh this particular season and um you know, the athletic training room closed like at a, at a certain time. And I had never realized, you know, that Mr. Z went home, Mr. Zaloga, who, who was our head athletic trainer at the time, he went home every, he was home every day for dinner, um, unless we had a game. Like that was not something that he missed. And so when it was time to go home for dinner, he rolled out. And I was like, wait, wait, hold, Mr. Z, where are you going? I'm still. <laughs> Athletes are still coming in, and I and you leaving, and he was like, "Yep, it's all yours, Sadia." And he rolled out. I was like, "Okay." I was like, "I guess, I guess I made it. I'm here. I am here. I made it." Mr. Z, trust me with the athletic training room. We're good. <laughs> so that was kind of like my defining moment right there, because I looked up to uh, Mr. Z so much, you know, and and he was just like, you know. She can handle it, you know. Time for dinner. I'm out. Yes, you know I'm going to have to ask you in future episodes to do your Mr. Z impression again. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Wow. Well, um, mine is similar. I have two particular instances that I can point to um, that really were that there were defining moments where I'm like, you know what, you are where you're supposed to be. And one was um J V football. So at, at um at Frostburg State, uh Donita and I were we were the athletic trainers for J V football. And we weren't licensed and certified yet. The program actually wasn't even accredited yet. Um but Mr. Z picked the two students that he trusted the most to send with on JV football. And it was just her and I, who else went? Did anyone else go? Uh, is this when we went to Shenandoah? Yeah, we went to Shenandoah. Yeah. And I got sick. That was the last time I ate chicken nuggets. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I think we took a couple of our students. Um, uh, Cause we were, were we graduate students at that time? I don't think we were. I can't even. I don't think we were. But we took a couple um, other younger students with us. Because I know Amy Mendoza went with yeah, us. Yeah, she did. Shout and out maybe, to Amy Mendoza. I think, I think, 
Absolutely. And I think Mike Goodman, I think, went with us. And Mike Goodman. Shout out to Mike Goodman. I'm going to text both of them and let them know that we <laughs> shout them out on the, on the podcast. But to for him to, to pick us out of all of the students that were in that program to, to, to travel with the collision sport. And I don't want to say without supervision because we were grown, but, you know, we weren't. It was really our first time was my first time, I should say, um, making decisions without somebody standing over my shoulder to catch my mistakes. And the fact that he believed in me enough to to let me do it um, really was a, a vote of confidence for me that I, I didn't it wasn't lost on me. I, I, I was all aware of it. And the second instance incident was um was not athletic training. Technically, I was the um, I worked for the intramurals department in athletics and one of my jobs was to be a referee for intramural sports and this particular night I was officiating an indoor soccer match and a young man had a cardiac arrest like right in front of me and I was terrified I was absolutely petrified at first I thought he tripped and fell and hit his head and knocked himself out but um, after I diagnosed the, the situation after it was over I went and looked back and like you know what he passed out while he was running and that's why he fell. Um, I rolled him over. He didn't have a pulse. He wasn't breathing. And I jumped right into CPR. And it wasn't even a thing. I was, uh, I didn't even think about it. I mean, I was, I did think about it. I was scared, but I was still, I was, I was okay. I know step one, do it. Look, listen, and feel. I know step two, two breaths. Give him. Did it go in? Yes. Okay. Now I need you to tell somebody to call, call help. Go for, go for help. And, um, on his team was actually a, a student who was a younger uh, athletic trainer in the program. I sent him upstairs in the, the PE building to go get the, uh, we had a grad student who was working basketball, men's basketball at the time, said, go get her, tell her to bring the AED down here. And she didn't have access to it, but I didn't know that. And she and I did CPR on this young man until the police came and uh, took over. And... um you know, we, we told people, look, we need to get you out of the way. Um, I need everybody who is not here unconscious or doing CPR to go stand on the other side of that door. Everybody get out of the gym. And we directed traffic, and um, we didn't have a favorable outcome. But we gave that young man, I think, the best chance that he had under the circumstances. And um, I didn't freeze up. I did a lot of questioning myself right after it was over. But I ran back to my textbooks to look and make sure. And I did. We did the steps correctly. We did the rhythms correctly. And um, that was a really, really tough situation. And I, I, if I could be honest, I cried about it for because you, you want it to work. Um, and but I gave my best effort and it let me know that in an emergency situation, I know how to act. I can fall back on my training because I spent so much time working on my training and I know exactly what to do. And um, it was a really, really tough situation, but I don't know if there's going to be any harder situation for me as a clinician than working on somebody who's, who's you know, on the verge of expiring. And um, to, oh, wow. to know that you can, you know, you don't always win, but you can't always give your best effort and execute your steps the, the way they're supposed to be executed. And to know I was able to do that under pressure really made me feel like, um, I have a home in this field. I remember that, Brandon. Yeah. I remember that. And I think, 
I think you may have been my first ATs care intervention before I, th- I knew. I remember that. That yeah. was very difficult. That was very. Yeah, I was. I remember that. I don't know. I don't want to. I wasn't clinically diagnosed, but I wouldn't be if I wouldn't be surprised if someone could look back and say you were depressed as a result of that. And you, you went through some stuff. I remember you. I remember you questioned being an athletic trainer. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that, and I remember telling you I was like, I was like that young man. He didn't even know that he had probably the absolute best person officiating his game that night because he had a chance. He had a chance, you know. It was just, I think later on it, it came out that he had an underlying health. Yeah, he had a congenital condition. condition also, that, um, that yeah, I'm not sure if he was aware of it. Um, but, uh, turns out that people with this condition, once they have a cardiac arrest, they, it's not a whole lot that can happen. Even with an AED, they tend to not, um, they tend to not revive or restart. So. I remember that. Wow. Okay. So should we go on to center court? Hey. Yeah. I'm ready. All right. Happier times ahead. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Candace is going to speak with us about uh, the values of preceptorship. So, we have some questions that we want to ask, and we're going to let our expert uh, answer them the ways that she that she sees fit. And um, I think it's going to be a fun conversation. So, um, <laughs> again, like I said, this is something that's very near and dear to me. I. I one of my favorite emails to get is the one that says, Hey, would you mind being our preceptor? I, I look forward to it every semester, every year. Cause it's, it's fun. And I think because I'm a little bit of a, a, a teacher at heart and you get to teach something you love, which is this profession. So would you mind um, talking a little bit about the evolution of uh, clinical education and athletic training from as far as you can trace, not necessarily a, the, in the beginning, but where, where you, um, you know, you can talk about, <laughs> you know, how it started and how it came about and what changes were made. And, and maybe if you know why we made some of those changes um, in clinical education to where we are today. Sure. You're in luck because I actually had a whole section in my dissertation about kind of like the history of athletic training education. And I wrote it and I thought, man, I'm never going to need to talk about this again and here we are so I'm, I'm kind of excited that I got more than one use out of it um but as you know athletic training education has been through several iterations um actually in the beginning <laughs> in the earliest model um, students actually got teaching credentials that prepared them to be health and PE teachers as well as athletic trainers and then later laboratory classes were added to um, the program of study. Um, a push for certification began about 1969. Um, and the first DOC, well, it probably wasn't the DOC at that time, but the first certification exam was given in 1970 to 28 candidates in Waco, Texas. And then finally, around 1980 is when the idea of an athletic training major was conceived. Um, the 1990s marks the period when accreditation came into the picture. And then finally, 2004 is when they eliminated the previous um, internship route. So prior to that, students could go through an accredited program 
which is what everyone has today, or they could go through an internship program where you're attending a, a program at a university or college that doesn't have accreditation, but you complete a certain number of hours during um, internship and you could become certified that way. But that route is no more as well. Um, so now we are strictly accreditation. Um, and then we've also moved away from undergraduate athletic training education to now just solely um, graduate programs. We also have um, some post-professional programs, residency programs. So athletic training has gone through a lot of changes since the 1950s. And I think that most of, or all of them really have been um, for the betterment of the profession, to make sure that students are as prepared as they can be, um, to make sure that we are preparing them to be healthcare professionals. So all, all of the changes have been in the name of making sure that our students are ready for the career that they have ahead of them. Awesome. Wow. So one thing to point out there is that the first exam was given in 19, the 1970s. So that just shows how young our profession really is. Absolutely. Still very young. Well, and you mentioned the um the internship route, which is um yep. essentially we learn by doing. And we when I know when we started our program at Frostburg State, we were an internship route program. And the year before I graduated, my year before I finished undergrad, they uh they became accredited. But before that, we just had to get hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And do you think there was anything lost in switching from the internship route? Or do you think we did a, we did a good job in general as athletic training educators and making sure that everything that we were able to take advantage of during the internship route that was good kind of made its way over to the accreditation route? So my answer is always going to be, it depends. I think that programs that have tried to take the very best of the internship route and, you know, weave that together with what an accredited program looks like, I think that those programs have been successful. Okay. I think that there are instances where, um, you know, maybe we did kind of lose some of that experience that students had. Like maybe, you know, there wasn't a, a particular, there's not really like a magic number of hours that you need to get, but maybe if there was more or, or some of the emphasis on the hours and the, the hands-on and the doing was removed, then I could see where students might struggle a bit. Um, but hopefully, you know, most programs were able to make that transition successfully where, you know, we're still taking the very best of the internship, the hands-on experience, the, the doing, the, the real-life practical experiences, um, and putting that together with the very important coursework and content that students need to have as well. You know, they, they have to have theory behind all the hands-on and the doing. So we don't just want students out putting their hands on people and they don't really know, well, why would I do this or when would I not do this? So they're both very important. Right. What a great answer. <laughs> so for, mm -hmm. for, for newbies, could you run through a couple terms for us? Um, not a couple, but maybe like a couple of couples. <laughs> we got. Uh, so <laughs> could you define clinical education and clinical rotation for us? Sure. So clinical education is the teaching and application of athletic training knowledge, skills, and clinical abilities 
on an actual patient base that is evaluated and feedback provided by a preceptor as part of an accredited athletic training program. This is the definition according to Katie because we commission on accreditation as athletic training education. And that's the body that, of course, accredits all of the athletic training programs um, in this country. And then a the clinical rotation, that's when you head out to a clinical site and get to do the fun stuff. So that's when you do the hands-on experience that you're talking about. That's when you have the opportunity to work with real patients. And really, you're applying the skills that you've been learning all morning in class. You get to go out to a clinical rotation. Um, we call them practicum experiences. And that's when you actually get to put what you've learned into into practice. Awesome. I think you should put that in your email signature. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> <laughs> this is where the fun starts. Fun starts with me. <laughs> hey, I know that's where it was when I was a student. I couldn't wait to put my hands on people. Class was fun because I had great classmates and my professors were, you know, they were like reachable, like regular people who just really knew their stuff and they were great at sh- sharing information and teaching. But I couldn't, I couldn't wait to be in the clinic. I couldn't wait to be on the football field or lacrosse or wherever we were. So um, and that's we had really so much fun. Cool yeah. That's one of the cool things about studying athletic training. There's so many majors where, you will spend, you know, if it's undergrad four years or if it's a graduate program two years, you know, learning these particular skills and this content. And you may not actually get to apply it until you graduate and get a job. With athletic training, you might be, you know, learning a special test at nine o'clock in the morning and then at two o'clock in the afternoon, you're performing that special test on a real patient. And that's so cool. I think so. So cool. <laughs> I, I we just had, we had so much fun like learning from one another and um that was actually one of the things that I really missed when I went um and you know kind of worked on my own and I was like oh all my friends are gone it's just me now mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay so uh, so um what go ahead yeah what what is that um what is an ACI or a preceptor? Like, can you define that for us? Sure. So ACI is an older term which stands for approved clinical instructor. And a preceptor is, is the newer term that is acceptable. Um, and these are the highly qualified professionals who supervise athletic training students in the clinical rotations we just talked about. So Shout out to both of you for being preceptors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they have to be certified and or licensed and working with an actual patient population. So um, as passionate and as excited as a retired athletic trainer might be to be a preceptor, if that individual wasn't actively working with patients, they wouldn't be able to be one. So you have to be certified and licensed when applicable and working with actual patients. Awesome. Yes. All right. So now we're going to move into um, descriptions of the role of the clinical education coordinator. So we're going to talk about your job, if that's all right. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, as a as Let's a person who's who's responsible <laughs> for for making sure that these students get a, um, you have to make sure they get a, a a varied experience, so they can't just all have the same type of clinical sites, right? 
Um, so how, right. how, how do you go about finding these sites and clinicians who are willing to participate and, and host your students? Mm-hmm. Good question. So I came into the role, you know, after someone else. So there was a number of sites that was, you know, already established. So, of course, I kept the relationships with the sites that we already had. Um, and then I reached out to some new ones, like, just driving around, I would see a high school and think, oh, is that on our list? Do, do we use them as a clinical site? Um, I looked on the internet for places that were near our campus that might be, you know, a reasonable driving distance for students to get to. Um, sometimes I would talk to a preceptor that we already had a relationship with, and that person would say, oh, my friend at such and such school um, is interested. You know, can that person contact you? Um, at sporting events, I would you know, meet athletic trainers who weren't already preceptors and exchange contact information with them. Um, just, you know, talking to people, getting to know people at the the annual convention and symposium, that's also a great place, like networking with people, um, especially when, now that our program has expanded. So we have students going to clinical sites in Washington, D.C., as far as Fredericksburg, Richmond. Um, we actually have a student in Louisiana this semester. So just, you know, networking and connecting with people and exchanging that contact information. And I, I'm just always on the lookout for sites. Wow. I'll see somebody post something on social media, athletic training related, and I'll look that person up and go, Oh, okay. They're in Maryland. That's not too <laughs> far away. Let me, let me find out their contact information and reach out to them. That's awesome. So networking is it's very- a lot of networking. Yes. Yep. So that person in Louisiana, is that uh, what's part of the new um, emphasis on an, an immersive experience? Um, actually, no. That was a byproduct of us being in a pandemic, really. Oh, okay. Um, it, it, you can probably imagine it was really difficult to find clinical sites for um, students this semester. Mm-hmm. And I gave students the option. I said, if there is a particular place that you are interested in, or if you have a connection somewhere and, you know, someone is interested in hosting you at a site, let me know and we'll reach out to them. And there was a student who was interested in going to Louisiana. We reached out and the the people there said they would be happy to have that student. That is so cool. Wow. There's a couple of students traveling. Yep. So that was one of the, um, I don't want to say one of the good things, but students had some additional opportunities this this time because of of COVID and the restrictions in the area. You know, some sites that normally would take students weren't able to take them. And so, you know, students got a little bit creative and said, well, I always wanted to go to this place. Could I look for a site there? And I said, absolutely. The worst that can happen is they can say no. Right. Yeah, you got it. You had to make the best of this situation, and that that's ap- definitely making lemonade out of lemons. Absolutely. Okay, let that be a note to all of the students. Uh, don't be afraid of no, because sometimes you don't get no. You yeah, get yes. Yeah. You never know if you don't ask. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The answer is always no if you don't ask. Boom. There you go. Hold on, I got it. Oh, that was a message. <laughs> I, I I can't take can't take credit for that. That's uh uh who says that all the time? Uh Director uh Flanagan. Oh yeah, awesome. Oh. Shout out to Director Flanagan. He always says that. 
Nice. So uh, when you're you when you're when you found your sites and you have your students, is there an art to matching the students to the sites that you want, or do you just say, "Here, go here and do what they say"? <laughs> so for my process, I do try to make sure that students have a variety of experiences, not just in the setting that they go to, but even you know, with the preceptor and how many students are there. So I, I look and see like, okay, this is this person's fifth experience. The first four experiences were with a male preceptor. I'm, I'm going to put them with a female preceptor this time. Or this student has always been at a clinical site where another student was there. This time I'm going to place them at a site with a preceptor where this is the only student who's there. Um, because of where... Our university is located. I also have to take into consideration that students are commuting. So students are coming from Maryland or from, you know, Stafford or Fredericksburg. So I also try to make sure that they're going to a preceptor who is closer to either where they live or where our campus is a couple of times. And then sometimes you're going to have to plan to go a little bit farther out just because I can't get everybody, you know, right there every semester. Um, I also take into consideration what that person wants to do for their ultimate career goal. So if I know that a student wants to, you know, someday work in a clinic, I'm going to try to get them with a preceptor who also works in a clinic so that they can get that experience to see if that's what they really want to do or not. Or if there's a student who says, I, you know, it's always been my dream to work in professional sports, I'm going to try to find a preceptor who works in professional sports or has had experience working in professional sports. So that person can impart some knowledge to them that maybe others can't do. So um, there, I would say it's like a puzzle. A lot of different factors go into it and the process is not perfect, but I do my best to make sure that everybody gets something that they want at least once during their process. You may not get what you want every experience, but at some point you are going to get something that you want. Nice. That's very nice. The biopsychosocial aspects of clinical education coordination. <laughs> you are awesome. Big words. Yeah, thank you. It's really <laughs> the preceptors who make it work. I mean, if it wasn't for, for you guys, we would not have a program. We, we have to have professionals who are willing to supervise the students. So it's very important to have people who are volunteering and willing to have students come to them. So I say thanks to you all. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. What a lot of great information so far. This is going to be a big one. So we're going to have to break it up into two segments. Be sure to tune in with us next week as we come back with Dr. Candice Lacayo. And she's going to talk about, roles and expectations for clinical students and preceptors be sure to follow us on facebook instagram and twitter at the underscore top underscore dat at linkedin at top dash dat and the number one that's top dash dat one be sure to email us if you'd like to email us at top underscore dat at outlook.com on behalf of dr donita valentine this is brandon holland saying we'll see you next week